Enjoy the best week of your game design life at a Waitress Games Design Retreat. Work with professional designers, developers, and others to improve your games, and more importantly, form lasting friendships with other inspired creators. Visit waitressgames.com retreats for more information, and use the code BGDLFAN for a free one-hour Skype session with award-winning game designer J.R. Honeycutt to discuss your projects before attending your scheduled event. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com. Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab podcast, a proud member of the Dice Tower Network. Each week, we want to bring you an insightful interview on a specific topic in board game design to help you design and create games people love. And now, here's your host, Gabe Barrett. What's up, my friends? Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab. Today, we're talking about games, we're talking about gamers, we're talking about non-gamers. Talking about what it looks like to design a game for people who aren't really in the hobby yet, or maybe they're kind of dipping their toe in the water, they're trying to figure this thing out, but what does it look like to design games that that bring people in, that they kind of expand the reach of the hobby as a whole? And we're talking to Adam McCrimmon from XYZ Game Labs. Adam, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me, Gabe. I'm very excited to be here. Yeah, man, really excited to talk to you because this is an important topic. Uh, you know, we, we talk a lot about how noisy the market is right now, how Kickstarter just has a million games on it at any, any given time. And so like one of the main things I think people need to realize is that we just need to expand our base. We need to expand our, our reach Absolutely. as far as games. And the more people we can bring in, the more people can buy those games. And, and maybe the market won't be quite as noisy if you add a few million people <laughs> to the market, so to speak. And so I think this is something really important to talk about. What is it like to bring more people into the hobby, to bring you know my mom into the hobby, you know, somebody who... In, enjoys games, but she's not a gamer, so to speak, or, or, you know, just people who've never even heard of games or people playing D&D, people playing Magic that are just, or even people playing fantasy daggum football, which is basically, you know, that's a, game. a board game for, for jocks. Yeah, that, you know, that, it's all that's it is. a board game on the internet. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. I mean, they are like one step away from Dungeons and Dragons. If we're really being honest with all the math and all the keeping track and changing this and the stats, I mean, it, it is, it's, it's, it's D&D for jocks. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> so I think this is... <laughs> This is important to talk about. But before we get into it, who are you? How'd you get into game design? All that kind of thing. Uh, so I'm uh, I'm Adam McCrimmon. I am I'm one of the co-founders of XYZ Game Labs. Um, company started about three years ago uh, because I had an idea for a game that I wanted to make, and I felt like I felt the need, the drive to create something new, and didn't necessarily wanted to sell it to a publisher. Wanted to make something more out of it. Um, got into game design, you know. As a kid, I had Star Wars figures that I would use dice and come up with stats and kind of play a you know a version of a board game. Uh, played a lot of games as kid as a kid that you would expect someone to play in the '80s and early '90s. Um, the The big thing for me to get into gaming in general was um, huge Star Wars fan. And when Star Wars the CCG came out from Decipher back in the late '90s, I was all over that. That you know that that appealed to me. Um, to my core, because the the imagery was great and the character cards were great, and the gameplay was was really really great. I, you know, thinking back on it, it was very solid, very cool system. Um, as a kid, I was like, "Whoa, this is confusing," but you know, I'm so into Star Wars, I'm going to figure it out. So I played that for a while, and then played the BattleTech uh, trading card game, one of the other Deckmaster games alongside Magic: The Gathering, also made by Wizards, and uh, and played those, and then at some point, just kind of stopped playing until. About 2012, a group of friends said that they were having Magic the Gathering nights 
because they had dusted off their old cards. And I was like, oh, really? I'll try that. I never really played Magic when I was younger. And uh, and that got me in. That got me hooked to getting back into Magic and then playing the other board games that came along with it. Um, I've heard people say in your show before that Settlers of Catan was the game that got them into, like, real board games. And I have to confess, that's probably true here, too. While I had played many board games, it wasn't until there was a night that we were playing Magic and we got bored and we said, hey, let's play this other game that somebody's got, Settlers of Catan, played that, and then afterwards it was off to the races. And uh, it was just, that's that's the world that I wanted to play in from that point on. Yeah, that's really cool. And this, this this is exactly what we're talking about. What does it look like to design a game like Catan that does a great job of bringing people into the hobby and kind of what does that look like? Before we get into it, like, let's get a good working definition of different kinds of gamers, all the way from non-gamer as in I've, I've been living under a rock. I've never heard of Uno, never heard of Monopoly, never heard of anything, all the way up to the, you know, I play every single game that comes out. So like, what are some of the different categories you, you would put people in as far as non-gamers go? Yeah, so I, I will, I'll preface all this by saying I'm obviously not an expert, but we we at XYZ Game Labs have kind of gone towards this niche of making something, you know, our tagline for the company is invent new gamers. The idea is we want to grow the hobby. And in order to grow the hobby, you've got to talk to people who are not necessarily the people who know what every gaming term means or who understand what, um, you know, what is, uh, you know, action selection or set collection or, um you know, any of those terms. So I would say, um, you know, a true non-gamer is going to be somebody who they only have a passing knowledge of what a game, what games are. You know, they're probably familiar with card games, you know, that use a deck of 52 cards like poker and rummy and spades and things of that sort. Um, they, they've probably played Monopoly and played some of the those other uh, games that are regularly kind of, you know, get a lot of flack for not being great games. Um so there's somebody who just, you know, a board game is a thing that, oh, they, maybe they played them as a kid, or maybe they've got, you know, a kooky friend who is really into board games, or, you know, they find some at grandma's house. You know, maybe they play Scrabble. Um, from there, you get into people who are, you know, still fall into the kind of non-gamer category, but at least they're aware of games. So they do play Uno, they play Jenga, they play, um, you know, they might play Catan. Maybe Catan is a thing that they've played once or twice, or they're aware of it. Um, maybe they play it all the time, but they never really delve into anything deeper because they're not really aware that it exists. And then as we go through that spectrum, we get to uh, individuals who consider themselves uh, kind of in the hobby, but they're they're into light or medium weight games. So that's going to be a lot of card games, um, you know, things like Exploding Kittens or uh, Cards Against Humanity or, um, you know, other party games in those realms. Super Fight, one of my favorite ones. I, I actually love that as a party game. Um, those, uh, those games are going to be those light to medium weight or light gamers. Uh, to entry-level gamers. And then you've got people who are really into the light and medium weight. So that's where you start getting into, uh, I, I, would, I would put Catan in that category. I'd put um, the Grim Forest in that category. I think Azul is one of the rare games that is incredibly well done, but it falls into that kind of light medium game category. Uh, Ticket to Ride, same thing, right? And then, of course, you've got your hardcore gamers, and there's a spectrum of those as well, but those are the ones who are, you know, we're in the hobby, we're constantly paying attention to what's coming out. Um, we're looking, you know, we're going to Board Game Geek to look at what is on the hotness list or what are people saying. Um, we're 
you know, I think there's this moment that happens to you when you go from being kind of an interested party in gaming or a hobby gamer to being a more serious gamer, where one of the first things that you react to when you hear the name of a game is to look it up on BGG. <laughs> Before that, you might you might look it up and see it on Amazon, or you might see a few pictures, or just kind of take a look in in general, like what does this game look like? But then if eventually you hit a point where you start you hear a game name and you're like, all right, I'm gonna go see what BGG has to say about this game. What's the rating? <laughs> what are all the mechanics that are listed? So there's a there's a range there of what that possibility could be. You know what their um, what kind of what kind of games you could possibly be into, and then how deep you go into them. And there's people that consider themselves real gamers, but all they play are light to medium weight games. Yeah, definitely. And I feel like you could really turn this into a pyramid chart uh, of you know non gamers are this giant foundational base at the bottom, and then all the way up to the super heavy gamers at the top, and it's a very small percentage overall. And so thinking through that, just from a number standpoint, let's get into the kind of the, the why. Why is this important? Why is this a good conversation to have? Why is this something for game designers and publishers and and just gamers in general to be thinking about and just to be aware of? Yeah, I mean. The biggest thing is, like any market, you know, the, the hobby game market is, it's an industry and it has a cap of how many people are interested and how many people are participating in that industry. And by growing the category, um, you grow that overall base and some percentage of that base is going to become eventually a hardcore gamer that has a Gloomhaven night every single week. <laughs> um there's also, you know, many, there's smaller, there's larger and larger percentages of that base that are going to become either casual gamers or they're going to, um, you know, get into light and medium weight games or they're going to, you know, decide that, oh, yeah, games every once in a while are a, are a thing for me. But for our industry as a whole, in order for all of us, you know, they, they talk about there being a glut of games now and 600 new games come out every year at Gen Con. Well, in order for us to find homes on shelves for all those games and for all of us companies who are making games to continue to grow and and make good stuff, we've got to grow the base. We have to grow that audience. And making games for inexperienced or non-gamers or new gamers, um, that's an important part of the mix. If you don't have those, that you know, don't have those entry-level games or those... Um, I'm struggling to remember the term right now, but those gateway games, that's what I was looking for. If you don't have those gateway games, then you don't have a, um, you don't have a way to get, to grow the hobby and get new people into it. You know, we can't just, we, we can't just play Catan forever, right? <laughs> yeah, that's a really good point. And it's a whole, you know, a rising tide raises all ships. That's come up so many times on the podcast uh, before with other guests, this idea of just expanding to other people and it's going to help everyone in the industry because it's not like buying a car. You know, it's not like somebody goes to the lot and they're going to buy one car for the next five years and that's it. No, if they get into the gaming hobby, they're going to buy one game and go, hmm, I need all the rest of them. And they're, they're going to buy a ton more games. That's just kind of how, how this works. And anybody listening to this who, who's ever you know gotten into the just buying games, you know that all of a sudden it, it's a floodgate and you have to like really protect your wallet all of a sudden because all the new shiny Kickstarters are coming out and you want all of them. And so yeah, you go, you, just... go from, you go from one shelf in your dining room to <laughs> five collapses that yeah. span a wall. Yeah, absolutely. And so bringing more people in is just going to help the hobby in exponential ways. And so I think it's just something to, to be thinking about. And it's easy to judge people. It's easy to go, oh, you like Monopoly. Oh, okay. Well, and, and to, to totally miss opportunities to bring people in that could be amazing 
assets to the hobby in general if we would just not be snooty about it, if we would not yeah. look down our nose at people and, and just and say, oh, oh, you like Monopoly? Oh, let's, let's play this other game. It's kind of like Monopoly in, in this way and that way, and it's, it's, it's a lot of fun too. You know, and, and just bring people in and be welcoming and inviting, just like just like anything else. You know, if you want somebody to be a part of it, be polite. A, a, key, a key part of kind of our ethos as we approach this was – we want we think that there's a game out there for everyone and we think that gaming is for everyone so there's a lot of inclusivity in in what we put together um you know we we want to make sure that every person who's out there can see a little bit of themselves somewhere in this game you know so you know the themes that we're going for are stuff that you know almost anyone can kind of grok and understand the general idea of what this theme is, the representation of the characters going all the way back to our first game, Robot Lab. You know, we want to make sure that when anybody sits down and plays whatever this game is that we've, we've made, that there's something that's for them in the game. Yeah, definitely. I think another angle to look at is this is one of the things that's actually most important to me about this hobby. It's one of the main reasons I, I am a game designer is I love the transformational aspect of games or transformational potential of games for for people to experience games and all of a sudden to be different because of it whether they're growing in community they're finding friends you know they're finding people to hang out with or they're building relationships they're getting a deep relationship with their spouse because they're you know having a little game nights at home with just little two-player games or with their kids is something really helpful to me is just playing games with my kids and deepening that relationship or whatever it is i think games have an incredible transformational power and so you know, bringing more people in the hobby is not only good for the bottom line and good for the market standpoint of, you know, being able to make more games and have a bigger market to sell to. And things. Yeah, that, that's true. But there's also more potential to help people live better lives, you know, to have games that help them to, again, build relationships or, or in, increase their creativity or whatever else it is. I, I just think there's so much on that side as well. And it's, it's funny because, like, you know, talking about board games and it changing the world or changing people's lives. Some people might hear that and go like, okay, you guys are overselling board games a little bit, but in reality, you know, uh, last week I was playing uh, unicorn glitter luck cloud stacker, which is a new, yeah, I love that game, man. I, I love I it. Just love the game. <laughs> My daughter adores it. She absolutely loves it. And you know what? Having that time with her where she gets to do this thing and kind of, you know, enjoy the mechanics of the game is fantastic. And my daughter's five, so of course she's the right age range for this thing. But I post a picture of that on uh, Instagram or Facebook or something, and one of my friend's parents, who's in her seventies, saw that and went, "That looks really cute. I'm gonna, I'm gonna buy a copy of it and I'm gonna play it with my, um, with my grandkids." And then she did. And then out of the blue, I get a phone call of her celebrating the fact that like, I'm so glad you showed me this game and you posted about it because she had so much fun and we played it for an hour. And it's just that, you know, that one little act of just kind of sharing the fact that that thing exists, a game that is, you know, very simple, but very good. Um, you know, it, it, it opened up a whole new world for their life of now there's this thing that they can do with grandma. And for that little kid, that could be a lasting memory, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there is so much power in the table. Whether you're talking about eating yeah. dinner with your family together around a table, you know, experts continue to say, hey, this is important. You know, get together, make time for it, put the phones away. This is important. The table's important. Or we're talking about games, you know, just getting around a table with some people you know, or maybe people you don't really know that you can get to know. It Again, like you're saying, creates memories, creates experiences, it builds relationships. And so the more people we can bring in to experience that, I feel like the better the world becomes. You know, it's, it's easy to hate people who aren't in the room. It's something I talk to my seniors yes. about. You know, if you don't know somebody, it's easy to hate them. It's easy to pass laws against them. It's easy to kill them and not even care. 
if we're yeah. being totally honest. Yes. Right. But when you know people, when you when you see their face and you know their name and you know a bit about their story and you've had this experience together, you know, and maybe you're, you're playing a war game and, and you get to blow each other up and you get to laugh. You're playing an RPG game and you get to really experience these kind of crazy moments of things happening or you're playing a co-op game. You got to work together, whatever it is. You're creating experiences. You're getting to know each other. You're building community. The world's better. And so I think bringing people in is just, ah, it's just so important. Yeah. And there's one other thing I want to want to say on that topic is there's this um, this feeling I have about hobbies in general and about gaming in particular that I think is really important to like the way people live their lives. And the one of the most important things to me is that, you know, is when people are asking me, you know, do I have any advice about, um, you know, uh, professional advice? Because I, I work in consulting and as a digital strategist, and I've done that for years and um, I've been in different leadership positions there. One of the main things I say is get a hobby. Because when you have a hobby, it gives you an outlet in which you can fail without there being too dire of consequences. And it gives you an outlet in which you can succeed and build those wins on each other to build confidence or to feel better about who you are and what you're working on. Um, though Having that safe area to both succeed and fail, and sometimes fail spectacularly when you lose some of these games, um, it, I think it really gives people this important thing that, that we need in this life where it's so easy for people to jump on you for making a mistake or doing something wrong or not doing the right thing. It's so easy now because of social media and how public all our lives can be for that to become the narrative. So having a place where you can come become comfortable with failure, I think is is really important to um, to our human brains, right? Like we we have to have a way that we can do stuff wrong and it's not that big of a deal, but it's a big enough deal to us that we care that we did it wrong. Yeah, absolutely. Completely agree. So let's talk about maybe some of the best examples, at least in your opinion, of these gateway games, of games that have really brought people in the hobby. You already mentioned Catan. You mentioned Ticket to Ride. Anything else that stands out, especially if you're wanting, like if somebody's sitting there thinking, I want to design a game like this, what would be some of the games you would recommend that they play or make sure that they at least are aware of before trying to design one? Yeah, absolutely. So um, so I'm going to stay away from like the, the games that are made for kids already, the ones that are made to be very simple and very easy, because those those are obvious, right? Like anybody can play Unicorn Glitter Luck Cloud Stacker or the original Unicorn Glitter Luck and, um, and get a feel of like what it's like to play a game, but it's not too complicated and, and frustrating. Um, some of the great, I mean, one of the best examples of a way to make a game or a game that is really good at I think getting new people into the hobby, um, I actually think is Wingspan. I, that game's already gotten a lot of praise um, put on it already this year. Um, but you know, the fact that they went with this game that has a lot of mechanics of a heavy uh, hobby board game, yet it is in this bright and colorful and beautiful illustration of the birds, and it it, it disarms people who would be predispositioned to go, ooh, board games, complicated. I don't want to sit and learn rules. They get over that hump because look, this thing is beautiful and there's birds and it's cool and there's this dice tower and it's made, you know, like it looks like a birdhouse. <laughs> you know, and there's little eggs. They, because of it's the theme and the production quality, they kind of get over that hump and go, oh man, you know, yeah, I'll try that out. So I think Wingspan's a great example. 
Um, I think that Parks is also a phenomenal example. I think what Keymaster did there with Parks is like they really ratcheted up the production value and the art quality and they made the theme just sing through the way that that game looks visually and how gorgeous it is. And then partnering with the National Parks uh, poster program was an awesome move to like make sure that you know, you're, you're really hitting that crossover audience. You're getting people who maybe they wouldn't have really thought about board games. Maybe they're kind of interested, but they see this and it's just gorgeous. And they're like, yeah, I love national parks. I'll totally try this out. Um, so there's two recent examples. And then I, I would say, you know, something like um, something like Azul. I, I mentioned it earlier in the show already here, but Azul is really great at just being a very beautiful game that looks uncomplicated to a new gamer. And I think that's an important part of making things work for non-gamers or appealing to that crossover audience is the presentation of the game has to feel undaunting and uncomplicated. If if the presentation is very complicated, then they're very, it's very likely that they'll be self-conscious about learning those rules or understanding how to play or getting something wrong. So I think that, um, you know, a game like Azul, especially at, you know, winning Spilajaris and, and being as popular as it is, that definitely helps too, to, to kind of get a, a new crowd in. Um, and then aside from that, you know, I, I got to give it to like exploding kittens and unstable unicorns. And there's a whole group of those games, you know, cyanide and happiness, um, I think Trial by Trolley is a great example, too, of just having this very interesting, disarming theme with a premise that seems super simple so that somebody can enter the hobby without feeling like, oh, my God, I'm going to get the rules wrong and everyone at the table is going to judge me for it. Um, you know, making it really easy for them to just feel like they can they can start playing this thing because they kind of grok it already. Yeah, definitely. Another thing I, w- I would throw add in there are all the rolling rights that are coming out. A lot of the simple ones are really great examples of just games that bring people in. On tour, um, I love that game by Board Game Tables. Like it, it's you know my my wife is not necessarily a gamer. She she will play games with me, and more and more now she is playing more and more of them. Um, shout out to the gateway game that I got her to play was uh, Grim Forest. Um, she loved the minis, loved the art. Loved how cute it was. So all of that smoothed right over learning rules and understanding how card interactions work and all that stuff. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think that, you know, the roll and rights definitely help because they take a lot of the pressure off. It's real simple and straightforward what you're supposed to do. And the whole team table gets to do it at the same time. You get to play a game with people, but you don't necessarily feel like what you do is going to maybe mess up their turns. So now you feel a little bit better about, you know, engaging in this behavior with them because you're not going to get in the way of somebody who's experienced. And and on tour uh, is one of my favorites. Like I, I, I love the way that it, was um, the way it was planned out. I love that it can be almost as many players as you want it to be. Uh, big chunky dice are great. It's a it's a it's a really good example of a way to get people who are non gamers or maybe aren't familiar with all the concepts of gaming just start engaged in the process. Right, and a lot of these games are pretty quick. You know, um, one of my favorites is Rolling America, but there's a variant called Rolling Sherlock. And so, in my classroom, I, I use this as part of the Sherlock Holmes unit. It's just a fun little extra day. It's like, hey guys, come on in. You know, we're not we're not going to do anything crazy today. Nothing super complicated. We're just going to play a game. Uh, here, I'm going to pass out these laminated sheets, and I give everybody an expo marker. 
And then we just start, I just start rolling dice and we just start putting numbers down. And it takes a few minutes for the kids to like grasp, okay, how does this work exactly? But about two or three minutes in, they go, oh, oh, okay, I get it. And now they're in. And now we're having fun and we're playing this game and they're trying to beat each other, you know. And it's just a really cool way to bring people in. I've played that game now with, I don't know, 200 and something people over the last couple of years in different classes. And so that's been a really great uh, entry point into the into the hobby. And then one of my other, one of my all-time favorite games is Deception, Murder in Hong Kong. And that's a game I can explain in about five minutes. And it usually takes one play for people to go, oh, okay, I get it. But it's so simple. It's so easy. It takes just a handful of minutes to play. You got kids accusing each other of being a murderer. You know, so I use this game also in the Sherlock Holmes unit, you know, trying to figure out, you, you get to be Sherlock Holmes. You get to determine like who's the murderer and which uh, evidence matters and that kind of thing. And it's just been a really great way to introduce more students into the hobby. Now I've got kids coming and asking if they can borrow heavier games. You know, I've got a, like a little gaming shelf in my classroom. They say, hey, can, can I borrow a pandemic? What is, what is pandemic? Tell me about that. I'll, okay, let me explain. And so it's, it's actually interesting more people in so you did it like that that's the key right there <laughs> yeah. right like that's that's growing the hobby is you get people interested in this one thing and then they go okay yeah this seems cool what kind of game is that one or this one or this other you know like they, they start throwing out titles that maybe they've heard once or twice or maybe they're somewhat interested in or maybe there's a theme that they really are like hey that seems like a cool thing to do what is this game and now they're all of a sudden they're not scared by the rule set they're not scared by learning what the, you know, the engagement behavior is supposed to be for this thing. Yeah, definitely. Five minute Marvel has been another one. And that actually, oh, it got a kid. Five and, minute dungeon, by the way, yeah. it was so good. Mm-hmm. I like, I was the first time I played that. I'm like, Oh, I'm so mad. I didn't design this. This I is know, right? so good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm right there with you. And one of, one of my students, a guy, a guy named Armando, he's a junior this year. Uh, we played five minute Marvel in my classroom one day and, you know, after playing deception, some other things, we just, it was weird with the power was out. And so I wasn't able to do anything I wanted to do, you know, some third world problems going on. So I didn't have the internet, couldn't use my projector, couldn't, it's like, all right guys, we're just gonna play some games. And so I pulled out a handful of games that I thought they could figure out and uh, that they had played in the past. And so five minute Marvel was a new one that I'd gotten. And this kid named Armando, we played it and he's like, Mr. Bird, I I want to I want I want more. Like help me understand. Like can I borrow? Can I take this home? Can I can I show it to my parents? And so he took it took it home for a few days and like came back, and he's like, I, we want to play more. And then the really cool thing about Armando is I don't know maybe maybe a month later, six weeks, something like that. He came to me and he said, Mr. Bird, I have an idea for a baseball game that I want to make, and we started talking about game design. See, and that's that, that's yes. the, the next progression in this. I had a really good conversation uh, with a woman the other day about how to get more female game designers into you know, doing it into the hobby. And I said, well, the biggest yes. thing is we got to bring more women into the hobby just in general as gamers. Because once yeah. anybody starts playing a game, they start getting the juices flowing. They go, I, w- I want to create one of these, just like Armando did. And that's how, that's how you get more people in, whether it's students, whether it's women, whether it's whoever. It's just expand the hobby because people are going to want to design once they get in. Yeah, absolutely. And and that's that's one thing, too, about the whole idea of inventing new gamers and, and making games for non-gamers is, you know, the, we don't have to be – we, we shouldn't be precious about this. And, you know, gatekeeping is an awful thing to do to people. And we we all, all gamers, should want more people to play games. It does nothing but help all of us enjoy interesting things that wouldn't have existed before. I mean, who knows if Wingspan would have, ex- would have even existed? Who knows if um, if any of these games would have existed if, if new people weren't brought into the hobby? So I... I, I I'm a strong believer of like, hey, we need to we need to be inclusive in who we talk to and who we bring in, and we need to be inclusive in who we show in our games, because at the end of the day, the more you get new gamers that exist, the better it is for everybody. Yeah, for sure. All right, let's kind of keep traveling down this road and talk about theme. You know, with Wingspan, 
that game could have been, you could have reworked it. It could have been trading in the Mediterranean and you could have had very similar mechanisms. You could have figured out how to make that work with the theme. You could have done it, but it would not have had anywhere near the impact as it has with the birds and just the beautiful illustrations of bringing people in. Oh yeah. And so and I've heard people say, I've heard people say like, you know, why didn't they do this with dragons? Cause dragons fly <laughs> and they lay eggs. And I think I might've heard somebody on your show yeah. say that. Lizzie Funk and I was like, yep. yeah. And I was like, you know what? You're right. It could be dragons, but if it was dragons, then people who, care about fantasy games they definitely would have cared about this but people like me like i i I don't i don't love fantasy as a as a theme by the way i play a lot of magic the gathering which is it's silly i don't love fantasy as a theme because that game is all fantasy but um but you know fantasy is not the thing that does it for me to get me into a game but this weird unique theme of like birds and you're doing like that that's appealing that's cool like sure I'll, i'll play in that world for a little bit yeah, and if you look at the numbers, I was talking to Elizabeth Hargrave just a few days ago about this, actually, and she said the number of women in the Wingspan, like Stonemeyer Facebook group, the, the percentage of women is astronomical compared to any other game that Stonemeyer has done, right? And I would argue probably astronomical compared to any other game out there, right? And so just the number of yeah. women that have been brought in and the number of people who, you know, they always wanted their spouse to play a game with them. They never could get them in for whatever reason. And then and then their spouse saw Wingspan. They're like, oh, well, this, this looks interesting. Oh, and it's designed by a woman. That's kind of cool. Yeah, I'll, I'll give it a shot. And now they're in. Yes. Right? And so yep. it's just so important. And so let's, let's talk about theme because you have an interesting game going to Kickstarter soon uh, called Arch Rabbles, which is about knitting, right? Which is definitely yeah. not fantasy. You're not you're not knitting <laughs> armor for, for your people to go fight dragons or anything. And so let's no. talk a little bit more about why why theme is important and maybe relay it to you know relate it to your own game. Yeah, so uh, I see theme as and, and I'll say this first: I am a theme first gamer. Um, that's not how I necessarily design games, but it's definitely how I choose which ones I'm interested in and want to either back or play is the theme is the thing, the, fir- the first thing that hooks me. You can have really cool mechanics and mechanisms or whichever of those words you want to use. Cause I don't want to get into that whole debate, but, um, the, uh, the idea of a theme, you know, resonating is re- really gets kind of gets my juices flowing for playing something. And when we, um, when we think about making games for non-gamers, that theme matters a lot. So, you know, the, the very first game we made robot lab was about build, was about kids building robots. And it was meant, it was built to be a game that a family of five could sit down at the dinner table and play. Um, our second game in Noka was about fighting chipmunks. And it's, it's that because, you know, that's a theme that is a bit disarming and makes everyone feel like, okay, this is silly. These, these chipmunks are taking this fight real seriously. So, you know, we're, you, you don't, you don't feel like you're going to mess up or you're getting into this heavy world. Um, you know, with Arch Ravels, the, um, or let me say this first, when it comes to designing games for non-gamers or for new gamers, having a theme that they feel that they can kind of understand and grab onto and doesn't feel like it's part of the traditional board game themes, I think is really important to making them take that leap or get interested. You mentioned that uh, Wingspan is one of those kind of spouse gateway games for a lot of people. And I honestly think that Arch Ravel is not to put us in the same category as Wingspan because that's a whole different, you know, that's a different game. Um, it's in the you know it's the same idea we want something that you know if your spouse is into crafting if they're into knitting and crocheting and things of that sort and they're not really into board games well here's a way to get them in maybe into the board game hobby or maybe just to have a you know a, a night every once in a while where you get to do something together that appeals to both of your hobbies um so 
the uh, having a having the right theme, I think, is really important when you're you're looking at that audience. This is also something that, um, and I may be a little bit biased saying this, but this is also something that I I keep we should keep in mind when it comes to license IP. Um, you know, we have an IP game, Tiny Tina's Robot Tea Party, um, Villainous, great IP, uh, Walking Dead, Something to Fear, another great recent IP game that are all created by hobby game companies. Um, not to put us in the same category as uh, as Ravensburger or Skybound, um, but we did, you know, we do have a game that is a licensed IP, and it is it's a hobby game. And when we when we looked at making that game, we got the amazing opportunity to work with Nerdvana Game Studios uh, out of Texas and Gearbox to make that game. Um, we one of the reasons that we said like, yeah, this is really something we want to do is because that's also uh, talking to non-gamers, but it's a different version of non-gamers. It's a it's a version of non-gamers who play lots of video games and they really care about the video game world and they care about the Borderlands universe, but maybe they've never picked up a board game before. Maybe they've never even looked at playing a card game. And now that there is a game, a card game that is in their universe, now they're like, oh, well, this is a thing I can try and, and I, I want that because I want the Borderlands stuff. So they get that game and now they've gotten a hobby game experience, a really light one, but they've gotten a hobby game experience, which means maybe they that opens their eyes to, oh, this whole gaming thing, you know, this, this feels nice sitting around a table with my friends doing this interactive physical thing. So when we think about themes being accessible to a non-hobby audience, I think it's more than just, do we have a theme that is cute or interesting or odd? It's also thinking about that audience from the, from the standpoint of who else is a non-gamer and what do they care about, even if what they care about is something that is already gaming adjacent. It's just not board gaming adjacent. Yeah, absolutely. And I think let's, let's kind of switch gears and talk about mechanisms for a second. I think this is also important to make sure you're you're using mechanisms that are easy to understand, but maybe are also just borrowed from other games. You know, a, a game that uses the rummy mechanism, but then goes a little bit deeper, a little bit more complex, or a game that uses spades or hearts or something that, that people are probably already familiar with, and then kind of turns it into more of a gamer game, I think is also something important. If you look at a lot of these games that, that we've been talking about, they, they kind of do that in different ways. And so let, let's talk about that for a little bit. Why, why do you think, or is is it important to use mechanisms that you're kind of borrowing from more mass market games? Yeah, so this this is a knock that a lot of um, a lot of these lighter medium weight games I hear them get pretty regularly is oh they, they didn't really do anything new here or they borrowed that mechanism or mechanic uh, from another from this other game. Um, you know, most of the games we talked about here they didn't invent some new white space in game design. But what they did do is they took a tried and true mechanic, something that people that we know people can easily understand, and that maybe someone who isn't in uh, the hobby game market could also easily understand. And they wrapped it in they wrapped it into this theme, and then they attached it to some other mechanics that are easy to understand to create a hobby game experience without necessarily having to create some brand new, cutting edge, innovative mechanic. Um, to use a a real world example from our game, Our Travels, which hopefully by the time, I think when this episode releases, will be on Kickstarter, so go back us. Um, with uh, Our Travels, you know, the game is essentially uh, set collection and then uh, crafting. So putting, you know, you, you collect yarn of different colors and then you combine that yarn to craft items. And you can craft things like bears and hats and mittens and, um, and blankets. And then once you get those items, 
you can then later turn them in to complete projects that you've been asked to do. So you might have a project like Stargazers, which is two hats in a blanket, and you need to make two hats and make a blanket. Well, that idea of collecting the right color yarns in the right quantity and turning them in to make a hat or a blanket, and then collecting enough hats and enough blankets to turn them in for the project, those are real simple mechanics, something that anyone can understand um, and doesn't take a, a hobby gamer brain to, to kind of put together the math, right? Um, now, the fact that those are worth points and there's different point values for turning in a project versus an item and the fact that on your turn you can only choose to do one action at a time that starts to bring in some of the more crunchy board game stuff so they start to get a feeling of they're into this world of hobby gaming but not in a way that makes them go like oh i i don't know what the terms action selection and set collection and uh, resources i don't know what all those terms mean you don't need to because it's a very simple um, you know, copy of what, what you do in real life. When you make something, you collect the right color yarns, you need to make it, and then you craft it. And then when you want it, when you when someone's asked you to make some stuff for them, maybe two hats and a blanket, you make two hats, you make a blanket, and you give it to them. Um, so when you design the mechanics for a non-gamer game, it's important to keep in mind that are for, let me put it this way, when you design the mechanics for a game that is meant to get people into the hobby, it's it's important to, it's not, it's not that you shouldn't try and do anything innovative, it's that you need to keep in mind that these people, their brains aren't already wired that way. They're not already thinking about how do I optimize my points and how do I make sure that every turn is as good as it can be and, and how do I block out another player from doing this thing. All they're thinking about is the goal that's in front of them and how quickly they can get to that goal because that's when you first start playing games, that's the only thing you're, you're concerned with. Yeah, and so when you're designing one of these and thinking about complexity, you know, wanting to make sure it's not too complex, it's not hard to understand, the rule book's not too long, that kind of thing. What are you looking at? What are you thinking about in the design process as far as making sure the game is is not, you know, it's it's complex enough to be fun and provide some choices, but not so complex that they kind of shut down. Yeah, so the the first thing we're usually looking for when it comes to complexity is um we try to we first set out to just do an outline and we most of these games happen experience first, right? What, what is the thing that we want somebody to do? When the, the design started for Arch Ravels, it started around this idea of, okay, we want people to collect yarn. We want them to make things with the yarn and get points for making stuff. Okay, that's like the most simplest version of this game. We went through probably five different design iterations figuring out, okay, how do we make this feel like it's not going to overload somebody who is new to this hobby? And a lot of that, um, to be honest, for me, a lot of it, I, I, I leaned back on my user experience training because for years I was, um, you know, I've done digital consulting and I was a, led a user experience team for a long time. And there's this idea in UX <clears throat> or user experience called chunking, where you take a lot of steps and if you were to present them all together at one time, you would most likely overload a user. So instead, you chunk them out into groups of steps that feel like they logically go together. So a lot of the tweaking that we have done around making sure the complexity didn't get too high on um, our travels was really around making sure that we left enough room so that when you have to do a step, there's only maybe two or three parts to that step. So collecting yarn, turning it into items, that's, you know, there's like three, 
two or three things you do there to make that happen. And then we separated out the idea of turning them into projects. So it happens at a later phase in the game uh, or a later phase of your turn. So you don't feel like you have to figure out all the logic at one time. You get to figure out a small part of it and then you have a rest point and then you get to figure out the, the next part of it. Um, same thing goes for you know our design on uh, Robot Lab. The idea there was there's just three steps to every turn. You play a card, you uh, discard some cards, and you draw some cards. Really making it simple to understand like, hey, in this section, you're just doing this thing. And look, the name of that, of that phase is literally the only thing you're doing in that phase. So it just helps to kind of walk, step you through. That doesn't mean you don't have to have a lot of phases or you don't have to have a lot of mechanics. Um, but the more of those you put in, the higher that complexity level goes. And there's a there's a quote, and I think I think it's from Mark Rosewater, of uh, complexity in design is just layering simplicity. And we um, we think about that a lot when we're designing any of our games. Is thinking about okay, the step that the new thing I just put into this game, how complex is that thing? Is that thing relatively simple on its own? And then how complex does it make the entire experience to layer that simple thing on top of another simple thing or a more complex thing? Yeah, that's a great point. And another thing I look at is how is this going to make the rule book longer? Or yeah. how long is it going to make it? You know what I mean? Yeah. And so, and is it worth it? Is it worth the extra three paragraphs, the extra page, however it is? Is it worth that for the gameplay? Oh, yeah. And if it's not, then don't worry about it. We've yeah. had some really cool designs. Like we're, we're currently working on three or four new games for the next, that are going to be coming out over the next two or three years here. And um, and one of them is about, uh, about building shops on a pier, like an entertainment pier. And there was some really cool stuff designed. Um, by uh, my co-designer on that, uh, one of the guys who works at the company, seems Mike Wade. Um, we, we he designed some really cool interactions and some really cool stuff. And I'm like, dude, I don't know how we're going to explain that in the rule book. <laughs> Which means, if I don't know how we're going to explain it, we're going to have to take some turns on figuring out, okay, what is the core of what we're trying to do here, and how can we simplify it down so that the same endpoint happens, but maybe the way you get to that endpoint feels a little bit easier to uh, to get through. <laughs> Yeah, for sure. All right, let's uh, let's talk about length of games. I think this is another thing that's uh, one of the main things that turns people off, you know, because especially it's it's not just how long the game plays. Maybe the game only takes an hour to play, but it also takes 15 minutes to set up. It took, takes 20 minutes to explain. It takes five minutes to take that. I mean, it's, it's the whole thing that you got to take into account, not just how long the game plays. And so let's talk about length and just things to be aware of when you're making these kinds of games. Yeah, so you mentioned in there uh, about length. You said maybe the game only takes an hour to play. Well, remember that for somebody who is a non-gamer, an hour is an eternity. Yeah, no doubt. <laughs> to them, hearing, hearing we're going to play this game for an hour, they go, oh, an hour? It takes that long? <laughs> um, so, and, that, and that's something that we, you know, we don't think about. As gamers, we're, you know, as people who are in the hobby game you know, world and we're constantly playing games, we're like, an hour? That sounds great. An hour sounds fine. No problem there. Um, so thinking about game length, it, you know, if you're building a game or you're designing a game that is really for someone who is probably entry level, non-gamer, likes light games, that kind of thing, you probably want to be under half an hour, maybe right around half an hour. And because you have to remember, to your point earlier as well, there's setup. You got to set up the game. 
And if your game is just a deck of cards and um, all you need to do is pull them out of the box and shuffle them up and deal some to people, great, that's fine. But as soon as you start getting into a world of there are bits and there are chits and there are things you need to place in certain spots and there's status markers you need to put out, all of that adds to the cognitive load for somebody of playing a game. All of that setup stuff adds to it. And if you're really designing for someone who is a new gamer, um, you know, here's, here's a great example. Um, Villainous by Ravensburger. That game is, it's a light to medium weight game and it's got, a, it's a great entry level game because the theme is wonderful and it definitely disarms people who are not uh, accustomed to board gaming. Um, and the setup for that is brilliantly simple. Like, sure, there are a few things that I'm sure some people listening to that would be like, oh, I wish this was different or this is, this feels a little finicky or whatever. But in general, you think about it, you grab a player board, you grab a action marker and you grab a deck that are all themed one character. That feels so simple and elegant, so easy to just be like, oh, that's how I set it up. An example on the flip side of that is Camel Up is a great gateway game. However, the setup has a bit of complication to it that gives people that set of like, oh man, is this going to be hard? Is this going to be weird to play? Like I have to set these tiles in this exact order and like this is the way the camels move and how does that and what do I do with these other tiles on the board? So both are examples of games that are good gateway games and good light to medium weight games, but one of them has a what seems like a really simple setup to somebody, even if it is more complicated. And the other one has a setup that seems more complicated um, because they're just not used to that world. So thinking about how long your game takes to set up and what you can do to make that easier. You know, one of the things we noticed about our travels was that there's a lot of bits and there's a lot of stuff in the game. So we've gone down the route of saying, okay, we're gonna have a custom design tray that you just pull out of the box and it sets up your yarn bazaar right off the bat. We're gonna include a game board that you can put all the cards on just to take a little bit of that. Like one, it's cool stuff to get in a box that we as gamers love, we love getting game trays, gay, uh, game trays, trays, and we love getting play mats or boards. But for somebody who doesn't play a lot of these games, they're a necessity. Where do I put the cards? How do I set them up? What do I do with all these yarn tokens? They need to know that stuff before they can start playing and giving it to them in a way that they can just pull out of the box and put it down makes that cognitive load go down, which means they can spend more time learning and enjoying the game. Yeah, and I think this is another place where graphic design is so incredibly important and making sure everything is obvious, oh, yeah. everything is clear. Like you're saying, having boards and having spaces that it's very clear where resources go, where cards go, where the discard pile is, that kind of thing, goes a long way in understanding the game, in the setup of the game, and just kind of grokking all the things that might be going on. If somebody's only ever played Uno, right, you're going to want to hold their hand yeah. as much as you can uh, for something a little bit more, more complex and something to think about. Well, and here's there's a game that we always refer to as being, you know, people tend to refer to as being like a very simple game or a very entry level game, which is Monopoly. But sit someone down and have them set up Monopoly that's never played Monopoly before. It's not really an easy setup. There's a lot of stuff that you need to put in certain places and you need to do with things like there's there's some stuff to do there and they're probably gonna have a question of like why are there so many tokens i can choose from <laughs> um and we all know that game really well now so to us there's you know we short change and kind of glaze over all of those those things but you know that stuff to people who've never played a game before or are just starting out that stuff's really complicated yeah absolutely all right let's uh, switch gears a little bit let's talk about luck 
Now, one thing that you'll notice in a lot of gateway games, a lot of games that you know non-gamers are kind of drawn to, is there's a whole lot of luck, especially in comparison to the typical hobby game. And so, like when you're thinking about that, uh, what, why would one, first of all, why is that the case? Do you think? And then why would that be something just to be aware of in designing one of these? Okay, so luck in games. So this is one of one of my favorite things about designing games in this space is the fact that um, to people who are uh, you know, regular hobby board gamers who are used to playing hobby board games, minimizing luck and being able to really choose your fate and decide where you're going is super important to us. However, to someone who's new to gaming, they, a lot of times there's not even a realization or an understanding or an appreciation for the fact that they can be the master of their own destiny, that, that every choice they make does factor into the end of the game and whether they win or lose or whether they do well or not. So for those individuals, that that level of design is invisible or is unknown to them. So if it and if it is known to them, they um, it's really easy for them to have analysis paralysis, right? Because they're like, oh man, I've never played this before. I don't really know what I'm doing. The rules seem complicated. Also, every choice I make matters. Oh no, what do I do? But for, so when you introduce luck um, and you introduce things that, you know, kind of give them very limited set of options, what you're actually doing is you're taking some of that load off of them. Now, too much luck can be a bad thing because it doesn't feel like you're actually even doing anything. This is the, this is the biggest complaint of Monopoly, right? It's just you roll and you buy the property you land on. End of, end of game. But um, when it comes to a new gamer, you know, Giving them that choice of when they land on that spot, they can buy it or not, that's enough choice for them. That's enough interesting interaction for them um, because they're not used to thinking that every single choice they make in the game matters. They need to be presented with more simple choices. Uh, a great example of this, by the way, is King of Tokyo. Um, King of Tokyo is a, is a you know wonderful design that is a very good gateway game that has a lot of luck. Um, however, that luck is compartmentalized and it's smoothed out a bit by the fact that you've got, you know, you get to roll, you get, you get to Yahtzee the dice, right? You roll them three times and you, you pick what you want. And though that helps because now somebody who's a non-gamer, the, the choice they're making is which of these dice do I pick? And which of these dice do I pick for my exact moment that I'm in right now? I don't have to try and pick from seven different actions that could all lead to a different um, different endpoint, the dice are going to tell me what my options are and my options are going to be limited. And they like that. They like that effect that like, okay, I kind of know what I'm supposed to do here. Um, it's the same way that drawing cards from a deck uh, helps somebody who is relatively new to gaming um, really understand what is available to them. They have a hand of cards. They can only do what's in their hand. And that limits their choices on one turn, which means that they um, they don't get stuck with trying to figure out like what are all the best things I could possibly do. So I think when it comes to non hobby game non hobby gamers um, and helping them to to really embrace whatever game it is you're working on, keep in mind that luck is okay. You may want to make sure that luck doesn't isn't too deterministic for your the endpoint of your game. Um, you may also want to make sure you, you, know, you may not want to have much luck at all in your game, but then keep in mind that 
if you don't have that luck, you're making the player make a decision. And if you're making the player make the decision, keep in mind how many decisions you're making them make and how, how far ahead of time are they making those decisions for the end point of the game. Um, and if you're designing a game for somebody who is not a experienced gamer or not somebody who, you know, trying, trying to have a gateway game, just keep in mind that those kind of choices, those all add up for them into whether or not they enjoy the experience or not. I've had more than one time somebody who is not necessarily a gamer play a game and gone, it was great, but I felt like I had to like, I had to make a lot of choices about what I was doing and it was kind of exhausting to make all those. So while I could see where this is fun, I made so many, I had to make so many choices that I was stressing over the choices and not just enjoying the game. Yeah. Also something to think about is luck is a great equalizer, so to speak, where if you have someone who's played the game a bunch and someone who hasn't played the game very, very much at all, or maybe never before, luck can kind of put them on the same playing field, so to speak, because you never know what the dice is going to do. So even though I've played the game a bunch, I'm still rolling the dice and hoping that I succeed, hoping that I win and you've never played at all. And there you go rolling and you get some lucky rolls and now you're winning. And so it could also be. Helpful. Yes. Yeah, and there's this this great. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna quote Mark Rosewater again, but um, there's this great thing that he talks about uh, in designing a magic card, which is what he calls lenticular design, and it's this idea. Um, the the classic example in Magic: The Gathering is a card called Black Cat, and it's just like a little one one creature, I think, but it also has an ability on it that when this creature dies, you get to discard a card, or you have to discard a card. And to somebody who is a new player to Magic, they're gonna go, "Oh, cool, a cat." And it's a one-one. That other ability on it, whatever. That you know, that's okay, fine. I guess that happens later. But I just care about the cat right now. But for somebody who's an experienced magic player, they might see that and go, "Oh, great! I have a discard outlet that I can use to combo with this other thing and do this other stuff." And he talks about how the design for that card is lenticular, is in depending on your experience level with the game, you will see that card as a completely different piece of the toolkit you'll see it as a completely different, like you'll see value in it differently depending on how experienced you are in the game. Um, so there's some stuff like that that, you know, I'll, I'll be honest, we, we look at too when we are designing these games as to, you know, how we word the rules text on a specific card. Um, you know, for instance, the card in Tiny Tina's Robot Tea Party, um, there's a card called Respawn that will... Uh, take all the parts off of your claptrap and you can replace them uh, and you can still replace them with a part that turn. And that card, the way it's written, for somebody who's never played a game before, it's just a very simple, oh, I get to clear all the stuff off my car, my character and I get to get rid of all the bad parts. But for somebody who is experienced playing that game, that card takes on a whole different meaning of if I get that card turn one, I can actually supercharge my first turn. Um, or if I get that card late game, I can use it to combo with this other card and do this other thing. So keeping in mind how a different skill level of player might read your rule or your, your interaction differently um, can be really important to making sure that you make something that works well for a, uh, a non-gamer or a new gamer um, and something that a hobby gamer who really appreciates those interactions will also enjoy. Yeah, absolutely. Now let's kind of switch gears a little bit and talk about things from the publishing side of things, the marketing side of things. I think one, one trap a lot of us fall into as game designers, as people who are kind of engrossed in the hobby that know a lot, you know, they've been maybe doing this for a while. You know, we, we spend a lot of our time, kind of like you mentioned early on, spend a lot of our time on board game geek, 
But I think it's so important to realize that Board Game Geek represents like a tiny little fraction of a percentage of the gamers in general. Yeah. Right. And so what what are you thinking about when you're you know publishing a game? How do you reach the, the bigger market? Because if you look at like the games that sell really, really well on Amazon, the games that have sold really well all time, you know, games that have sold millions of copies. They're not highly rated on Board Game Geek typically. Now, Ticket to Ride is contained, you know, somewhere up there, but most of those games are really, really frowned upon on BGG. And so, from a publishing standpoint, what are you thinking? Yeah, so I can say that um, when we put our publishing hat on and look at where, what kind of games are we going to publish, or what kind of games are we starting to promote, um, one of the things that we we factor in because you know we do want to make hobby games and we want to grow the hobby game market so because of that you know board game geek is an important part of that that mixture for us um but we also don't look for trying to make a game that is necessarily going to score really well on bgg um you know i'm proud to say that you know our first game had an over eight rating for the first like year it existed and that's kind of trended down a little bit here but we don't put too much pressure on ourselves or too much stock in the in that rating because we know we're making a game that for a hobby game audience is probably just not their cup of tea you know it's not the thing that they're really looking for um and that's okay what we can do though is we can take a look at other games that are in the same vein or category that we're looking to play in and just take a look at how um how they have done things you know a lot of doing anything is learning from those who have come before you. So taking a look at how, um, you know, how villainous was, was put up on board game geek and how they refer to that game and how they classify it. Um, you know, taking a look at how, uh, and I'm struggling with other names off the top of my head here, but taking a look at how some of those games perform on BGG and then thinking about them as your peers. And, and I think that's something if I could say something to all the designers that are out there who are currently working on something and maybe those who are newer designers and are not quite sure, like, hey, can I do this? Am I, am I good enough to do this? One, yes, you're good enough to do this. Everybody can do it. And if you've designed a game, you are a game designer. There is no difference whether you are published or not published or you've released it or not released it. doesn't matter. You're a game designer. Be proud. Um, the other side of that I'll say is we it's so easy to compare yourself to all the best things on the market and then feel like what you've made is crap don't it's okay there is a game for everyone and every game has an audience and it's okay that your game is um you know, it's okay if your game is not like the other ones on the bgg hotness list at the same time, if you're going for that, I have a friend of mine um, who lives in the Chicagoland area is working on, his name's Jason Brooks. He's working on this game called Legacies and he he's, it's a big, serious, crunchy game and it's very cool and it's very fun. Um, but he's, he's designed that with the thought in mind of like, hey, I want this to be a game that like hardcore gamers love. And that's awesome. He knew his audience. He's going for it. Um, for, for a non-gaming audience, you know, BGG matters. It's Of course, it's important. It's important to be active there and to list your game there and to respond to comments there, but also don't feel like you live and die by your BGG rating because you don't. There are, you know, our lowest rated game on BGG, I think right now is Anoka. It, it, I'll just say it publicly because I, I don't think I've ever actually acknowledged this publicly. Yes, Anoka is rock, paper, scissors with extra steps. That's okay. It's made for those people who want something pick, quick that they can pick up and they can play, or it's made for those people who never played games before. And you're like, you just want to get somebody, like maybe just get the bug. Okay, try this out for a little bit. Um, 
So just keep that in mind. BGG is, it of course, is important, and there's so many good resources there. But also, it is not the only opinion that matters when it comes to board games. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it would probably be shocking if we got to see top ten games on BGG rating wise versus top ten money making games of all time, or even in the last year or five years. I think it would be vastly, vastly different. Yeah. Oh, it I, it would be so eye opening to yeah. see that list of the last year or so, maybe last two years as the hobby has grown more and more in the last few years, I would love to see that list of like, here's, here's the ones that made the most money and here's what their BGG rating is. Right. I mean, to be fair, I'm pretty confident. I obviously I don't have the numbers in front of me or anything like this, but I'm going to just wager a bet that pie face, the game that is not even a game. You just click the thing and you try to hit each other with a pie has made right. more money than the top 10 games on BGG combined, you know? Yes. And so just be aware of that, especially if you're making one of these games. A couple of years ago, we were at Chicago Toy and Game Fair. We were exhibiting there and we were having meetings with, you know, publishers and other partners. And the Hasbro rep had come around at one point um, and actually talked to the booth that was next to ours. And when we asked them, oh, what, did, what was Hasbro looking for? They're like, honestly, they said they're kind of looking for the next pie face. <laughs> And we were like, oh, that is not the game we have. Also, yeah, that makes sense. I mean, that game sells. It's an experience, and experiences sell. Right. I mean, I've got a copy. Uh, I, I hate it. My kids enjoy <laughs> doing it, and it's not fun for me, but they love it. And I've, I've hey, seen so many people love it. So. Fun is fun, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's a good point. And I just think it's something to, to be aware of. You know, I'm, my wife and I have been designing this little two-player Pride and Prejudice game uh, lately. And it's something, it's just kind of fun. It's been enjoyable for her and I just kind of bounce ideas around and, and uh, just try to figure out how would this work if, if I'm Darcy and you're Elizabeth and like, how's this game work? But that's not a game that's going to rate very high on BGG. And that's okay. I'm not worried about that. And I, I think right. sometimes we chase that a little bit too much. We, you know, and I think part of it is because we're designers, we're creators. We want people to like us. We want people to like our stuff. And BGG is such an obvious, like, here's a rating that tells me how good of a designer yeah, I am. Well, and that's but it too. Dangerous. And that's it too, right? It's like, we don't have many outlets that give us a quantitative idea of the value of a game. BGG does. The rating system gives you a it gives you a number, and it gives you a number of how good is this game. But you have to keep that number in the context of one, uh, who are the people who are you regularly using BGG, and then what kind of games does BGG lean towards? Because they do lean towards certain types of games. By the way, I'm I'm somewhat terrified that saying all this means that everyone everyone who is a BGG loyalist is going to go. All right, that's it. I'll add them all your games going down. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully you won't get any uh, any revenge or anything like that. But I think it's also something to think about with Kickstarter, right? A lot of these games that we're talking about probably wouldn't do very well on Kickstarter because Kickstarter has a very certain uh, percentage or grouping of, of types of gamers, right? Yes. It's the heavy miniatures style of games. It's, you know, it's not family games. It's not gateway games typically. They, those games usually don't fund at all or barely fund or, you know, they definitely don't overfund usually unless it's some kind of big giant project. Uh, Grim Forest that obviously bucks that trend. But for the most part, these games struggle on Kickstarter. So I think that's another thing. If you're a designer, if you're a publisher, want to go to Kickstarter, don't necessarily judge the Kickstarter market as the market. Don't let that be the determination of your overall success. Because maybe once it hits Amazon, or maybe once it gets out in the game stores or something like that, it, it does a lot different. Yeah, you know, I, we, we were just talking to um, our distribution partners a couple weeks ago about, uh, you know, potential games that we're working on. And there were a few that are in the pipeline that they're like, yeah, I don't go to Kickstarter with that one because you're going to soak up all the demand that exists just in Kickstarter and it's not and 
the demand won't be very high there. But if we get this in the hands of store owners and at locations, they're going to, they'll love it. Um, you know, to be honest, uh, as you know, as a publisher, Arch Ravels, it's, you know, going to be live while this, when this thing goes up, um, by the time this podcast goes live, we'll know whether or not that game was, uh, was the, right choice to go to kickstarter with um you know it is it's a the theme is knitting and crafting and it is it's a hobby game but it's made to be a light medium weight game that could also be a gateway game for people and though that's a hard sell on kickstarter and and we know that going into it right so um, we're keeping that in mind and we're tempering our expectations at the same time i think it's a wonderful game and it's super fun it's it's something that i um, when I play it, I find myself often getting lost in, oh, I really want to make that octopus, but that's not the right strategic move for me to do, so I'm going to make the octopus. <laughs> so, um, you know, there's there's more to be said about, you know, who, who games are for and and thinking about whether or not the audience is right or not. And then always remembering, it's okay to fail. If, if you go to Kickstarter and it doesn't work out, if you uh, put up your you know game on BGG and it gets bad ratings, that's okay. It doesn't mean that you made a bad game. It means it's probably not for that audience, and you just have to figure out who that who the audience is that it's for, um, or work on making the next game be made for the audience where you want their judgment. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this gets into expectations and just making sure you're you're putting out the right. Uh, signal, so to speak, so people have certain expectations and they're not let down. You know, don't put out a game that has art or, you know, different things going on that suggest it's a medium weight game if it's a super light family game, a gateway. Because yes. uh, that, you know, that's going to lead to people being being disappointed. Yeah. Uh, another thing to keep in mind, this is something I saw with, uh, it was a game store owner, I guess it was a couple years ago, and he was doing a, a talk at a convention and he was talking to designers about different ways that they can, you know, build relationships, bridge the gap between Kickstarter and game store, different, different things that, you know, from the game store owner's perspective. And during the Q&A time at the end, somebody asked, they said, well, what, what game has sold the most in your store? And he said, oh, Sushi Go, by far. Sushi Go has <laughs> sold great. just a hundred times more copies than any other game uh, on his shelves. And he said, think about it. It's, it's tiny. It's cheap. It's quick. I can explain it in one minute. I can sit it right there next to the register. So when people, they see it right when they're checking out, he said, I've sold so much more, so many more copies of Sushi Go than anything else. I started thinking it's like Sushi Go would not do very well on Kickstarter. Probably. Probably not. Just like if I, yeah, just some random designer, random publisher, you know, first created game, it would not do very well, but yet it sold more game, more copies than any other game in that guy's store. And so it's just something just to kind of keep in mind. Oh, can, can you imagine if the mind would have gone to Kickstarter? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, the, no the mind would not, not have done well people would have been like what is this like maybe if the price point was really low maybe it would have been fine but like the mind ended up being one of those games that I, you know i'm not personally a huge fan i think it, I, I, it's cool it's a cool design it, it is fun to play um i i don't love it but you can't argue with the fact that that game for a good six months last year it was being posted about on a regular basis in like hobby game channels. And if that game would have gone to Kickstarter, unless it had like a $10 price point, it, it wouldn't have done great. Yeah, definitely. That's a great point. All right. Switch gears a little bit. Let's, let's keep talking about yeah. the market, but from a play testing perspective, when you're play testing one of these games, what do you, what are you thinking about? What are you looking for? What are you trying to measure, trying to make sure of as far as thinking through, you know, for this certain market? Yeah, so this one, this one in particular, can be a big thorn uh, in the side of, of making games in this uh, fashion, in making games that are meant to appeal to a crossover or a gateway audience. You'd think it's as simple as just find people who are in that audience and have them play the game. 
But what you're forgetting about is the people who are in the gateway audience, uh, they tend to not react well to black and white cards with just words on them. <laughs> that um that allude to a theme but don't really sell it you know they need art they need images they need all that fluffy stuff that is not core to the design of the game but is really about making your theme come through and marketing the game they need some samples of that so the first probably three or four months that we were working on our travels a couple of years ago now um, we just had simple index cards that were written up, or I think they were, I think they were printed on poker size and put in sleeves with, you know, like magic card backs or something. And they were just, it was just the words and internally it, it play tested great. We were really enjoying the way that it played. So we started to get together some play testers that were outside of our internal group to start talking to having, having them try it out. And we got nothing but confusion and, and strange comments. And we realized after I think two of those tests that the reason that people were just not getting it is because everything was just words so your brain had to do a little bit of extra work to convert those words into what do they actually mean for as far as like symbols or icons. So to give you an example, in the game, you need three, uh, three pieces of yarn that are the same color to make a bear. Well, when that was written out, it wasn't, it wasn't easy to grok. So one of the things that we did pretty early on is we, we actually had an artist that we were already working with for some concept art for something else. And we said, Hey, can you just, here's like five things we want you, can you just draw up these like five things? And at the time it was, it was like a yarn ball and it was a couple different items you can make in the game. And then we laid out cards with that kind of stuff that really kind of uh, sold the theme. And those play tests changed dramatically. They started to become about the gameplay and not about how hard it was to understand things. So keep in mind that when you're when you're talking about this kind of audience, one, everyone who's on your playtest team, everyone who is either running those tests or listening in on them or participating in them, that is already a gamer, make sure they know what weight of game you're trying to um, trying to test. That, that this game is made for this certain type of audience, or it's meant to be a light to medium weight game. And then aside from that, when you start going to people who are who are not gamers to start getting their feedback because they're your target audience and you should definitely be getting feedback from them. Keep in mind that what you hear doesn't the first time doesn't necessarily mean you have a bad game. It could be that you've got bad graphic design or you've got bad user experience or you get bad uh, information displayed on the card. Um, taking a look at those things really can really help you could go like, okay, maybe the problem here wasn't that the, you know, the mechanic I designed here was bad. Maybe it was, it's not explained great or it's not super super quick to kind of grok or that it flies in the face of what the game is trying to do um you know somebody who's an experienced gamer they might be able to overlook that and give you feedback on the game itself and on whether or not it's kind of doing what you want to do but someone who's an inexperienced gamer could see that and go oh this is just too complicated it's just too much for me um another thing to keep in mind there too is your use of color and your use of iconography. Um, one, uh, you know, like 10% of the of the population is colorblind, so don't forget about them. Make sure that your game is colorblind accessible, and that goes for any game you make. You can make it colorblind accessible. Um, you don't have to do something dramatic all the time. Sometimes you can just do a little difference to make sure that people who can't tell the difference between red and green can tell the difference between red and green in your game. Um, 
that's one. And then two, um, keep in mind what the color does to how confusing or complicated the game looks, even for those who are not colorblind. Um, we, we have a game that we are currently working with a designer on to bring to market probably sometime next year. And it uses 36 dice. And those dice are there in six different colors. And the game is amazing. It's a co-op. I've never had an experience that quite, quite felt like this playing a co-op and I really enjoy it. However, when you look at this grid of 36 dice that show up in six different colors, something just happens primal in your brain that goes, whoa, I'm confused. This seems complicated. <laughs> it's it's not actually complicated, um, but the way that it, you know, the way that it, the prototype is right now, it feels complicated. And sometimes it feeling complicated is enough to turn somebody off who is in that, um, in that kind of new gamer or inexperienced gamer category. Yeah, that's definitely, definitely the case. And I want to come at it from a different angle. Whenever you're you're playtesting, make sure you're playtesting, you're blind playtesting your rule book, especially just as much as anything else with people who aren't familiar with the game. Right? One of my favorite things is to find, I've got some friends here at the school who are teachers and I will hand them a rule book and I'll hand them the box of components and I'll say, teach me how to play. Right. And, and they're not gamers. Yes. They're not people that have done much. They, they play Monopoly and whatever. And if, and if they can explain it in a way that makes sense and they're getting the rules right and they're not missing points, missing things, then I know I'm, I'm on the right track. Yes. But if they can't explain it, then, OK, I've got to go back to the drawing board and redo some things, make this more clear, change some words. Like you were saying earlier, action selection. OK, if you've never played a game, you might not know what that means. <laughs> right. And so just making making things uh, more clearly stated in the rule book and making sure the rule book's not too long. I think it's another thing. People open up a rule book and they go, wow, this is 12 pages and I don't want to play. Let's go play Uno instead. <laughs> I know how to play that already. You yeah, know, exactly. Just being aware. Um, yeah. The first time we set people down to do a blind play test with the rule book for Arch Ravels with the components, it took them 45 minutes and they had not even set up the game correctly. Yeah. That, I mean, that was a failure on our, it was a spectacular failure. We thought it was really simple. They did not. And these were non-gamers that we were, we were testing that, like, hey, you don't play games very often? Great. We want you to try this out. So yeah, that, that all matters, especially when you're talking to this audience, you know, we're never you're never going to sit a non-gamer down with the box for gloomhaven and the rule book and say learn gloomhaven that game was made for people who play games already um but you know you got to be able to do that with with games that are made for a gateway audience so as simple and as non-confusing as you can make it is the best and and i and that's a mark by the way that we feel that we we haven't always hit we, we, we're getting closer and closer, you know, like some of our previous games do hit that mark and some of them don't. And, and that's okay. You know, you, you learn and you grow and you get better. Um, but it's a mark we want to hit consistently going forward is making sure that, you know, somebody sits down to play this, who's never played a game before and they're super excited by this theme. Great. Let's not ruin their experience in the first five minutes by going, Oh God, this rule book's really confusing. Yeah. I mean, it's the least fun part of gaming and it's the it first is. part. It's it the is. very first thing. <laughs> so how do we make that? By the way, shout bit? out to Rodney and watch it played. Thank yeah. you, man. I've watched, you've taught me how to play more games than anyone else has ever taught me how to play by making it super simple. So, you know, thank God those creators exist that are doing that good work to help us understand how do I even set this thing up? <laughs> Yeah, where I come from, we would say that that man is doing the Lord's work. Yes. Doing the Lord's work. Yes. <laughs> All right, last question. Let's talk about awareness. How do we get more non-gamers aware of games? What do we do, you know, as a publisher, as a, as a designer, as a community, you know, whatever angle you want to take, 
How do we bring more people in? What does it look like to just create more awareness? Yeah, so it's not just about making the game, right? Um, it's not build it, they'll come. It's, you know, you got to do, you got to do the work and the work is showing up to, um, you know, showing up to conventions that maybe aren't necessarily the ones that board gamers, board games usually show up to, you know, for, for the first two years of our existence, we did a lot of conventions and we did, you know, we did Gen Con as one of them and that kind of stuff. We also showed up at a lot of like local, like comic cons and, um, and meetups and local, you know, uh, either gaming conventions or hobby conventions just to have a presence. There were many conventions we showed up to that we were the only booth there that was even board game, um, affiliated. And, that was because we were like, you know what, we want to appeal to a, a this broader audience, so we got to do that work as well. Um, so I think one, there's making sure that you are showing up and you're active in those areas. Um, you know, you're never going to get away from the hobby game channels, and you shouldn't because that is, you know, that's the core of of this industry, right? Is is being at uh, game nights or being at uh, conventions or, um, you know go into hobby game stores. That's, that's a core of it. But when it comes to expanding to a broader audience, uh, you got to keep in mind that the message to them is different. You know, I personally, just two days ago, we posted the rule book for Arch Ravels ahead of the Kickstarter to say like, Hey, people give us comments. And the strongest comment we got over and over again was that the overview in the beginning of the book was very heavy on the mechanical component or the mechanical terms of what kind of game this was. You know, it said crafting, set collection, resource management. And the people who read it gave us the feedback right away of like, I already know what kind of game it is if I bought it and I'm reading the rule book. And people who don't really play games are probably not going to know what those terms mean. And I'm like, oh, you're so right. How did we miss that? <laughs> so, um, so that's something to keep in mind is, you know, how much you use those terms and what, how you describe what you're doing in the game that all matters to uh, making sure that you're you're getting the the right audience engaged yeah absolutely well adam this has been awesome and you got any kind of closing thoughts or like what would you tell somebody who maybe is working on a game right now wanting to design a game that brings in non-gamers um I, I mean this is what works for me maybe it won't work for you but the first thing i think of is what is the experience that I want that person to have? What is the, what is the, what are the high point moments that I want that an individual to experience while they're playing this game? And then how do I make sure that they experience that moment and don't get confused or lose the lead along the way? Um, you know, for, for the very first game, it was, I want a family of five, you know, robot lab. I want family of five to sit down and I want them to have this fun experience that ends with someone going like, I built my robot. Okay, great. So reverse engineer that. How do I get them to that point? And what do they need to do along the way to get to that point that is easy for them to, uh, to kind of follow along and to understand. Awesome. Well, hey man, we talked about it a little bit. Arch Ravels. It's on Kickstarter right now. Give me like the two minute elevator pitch. Yeah, so Arch Ravels is a um, it's a, a needlecraft themed game. So you take on the role of one of four different specialists in the crafting community. Um, each one has their own little specialty or their own little power. So you've got the shopper who can access more yarn. You've got the crafter who can make more things. The spinner who can make their own yarn. 
and the uh, the dyer or the the uh, color specialist who can kind of turn yarn into whatever color they want and ignore color rules. So you get a little bit of asymmetry asymmetry there with the characters themselves. Um, for those who are uh, hobby gamers, this is set collection, resource management, action selection. Uh, and a little bit of drafting, um, you know, hold on the whole way, you're, you're gathering points because you're you're making items like bears and blankets and stuff, and then you're turning those in for projects, um, and then trying to score points off those projects. For those who are not gamers, I will say this is a uh, fun, colorful, crafty game where you get to uh, fulfill orders from people of different uh, crafted items. So all the items mentioned before, bears, blankets, scarves, that kind of stuff, you get to you get to make those. You get to knit them up, get little chits that are that are die cut and show those little things. So you have this fun little you know bear in front of you, and then later you get to turn them in and get some points from them. Um, so it plays in like 30 to 45 minutes, made for two to four players. And uh, and it's and when this goes live, it'll be on Kickstarter right now. Hopefully, um, going through stretch goals already, and maybe making it to that final stretch goal, which for this game will be a uh, custom cat meeple. Um, and you'll find <laughs> out how that works when you uh, when you check out the Kickstarter. Very cool. Well, custom cat meeple, you 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 got me right there, man. <laughs> I, you know, I was on the fence. I was like, I don't mind knitting, but now we got custom cat meeples, so I, I'm in. <laughs> Well, Adam, really appreciate you coming on the show. Appreciate your time. Good luck with the Kickstarter and good luck with everything else you got going on right now. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you very much for having me. Um, Board Game Design Lab, uh, as you said earlier, you're doing God's work. Uh, this this show is, <laughs> is fantastic. Uh, I listen to it regularly. I'm very honored to have been in an episode of it. So thank you for that, Gabe. And uh, and keep doing it, man. This is this is this is great stuff. Your interviews, um, your interviews with the, the the people that you get to to be on this show and the knowledge and the the help that they provide and the insight they provide is just amazing. And more than once I've been listening to the show and in the middle of it gone, oh, I have an idea for a game and started sketching out a concept just because I've been inspired by what I've heard. So uh, I hope maybe I did a little bit of that for somebody out there. Um, and I know that you having this show and running that community is a really critical part to this resurgence of board gaming we've had um so thank you for that yeah definitely it's, it's my pleasure uh, i really appreciate you saying that um this is something i so much enjoy and i uh, have no desire to slow down anytime soon so lots of really cool stuff ahead and uh yeah this thanks again for listening thanks for listening hosting for the board game design lab podcast is sponsored by quartermaster logistics the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing Check them out at qmlogistics.com and find all sorts of game design resources, bonus material, and chances to win free games at boardgamedesignlab.com. And until next time, keep designing, keep playtesting, and keep creating great games. Did I mention keep playtesting?